Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello and welcome to The Rest is History. This, I'm proud to say, is the podcast that refuses to be bound by format. Sometimes we like to ask the big questions. What are the lessons of history, for instance? And sometimes we like to narrow our focus to a single year, the extraordinary events of 1981. And sometimes we want to take you back to your nervous teens waiting to turn over your history exam paper. And today is just such a day. Our question has been asked and answered every June for decades. What are the causes of the First World War? Dominic Sandbrook is with us. And fair to say, I think, Dominic, having talked to you about this, that you have some <laughs> uh, some kind of quite radical views on the subject. Yeah, heretical views. Yes. Um, contrarian, I think, is the word that's always applied to you. Um, but before we get onto those contrarian views of yours, could you... Um, for the benefit of me, who never actually did the First World War for, for A-Level, um, could you just run down, give us a story. How was it that the world went to war? Golly, that's a very big question. Well, I'll try to do it as quickly as possible. So at the beginning of the 20th century, Europe was divided into really two main alliance blocks. So you had Russia and France with sort of Britain semi-attached to the Russian and French alliance called the Entente. And then you had the central powers, which were... Austria-Hungary, um, which was the Habsburg Empire, and the newly formed Empire of Germany. And um, in 1914, in the end of June 1914, uh, the heir to the Austrian throne, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, um, as many of our listeners will know, was assassinated in Sarajevo in Bosnia by a Bosnian Serb gunman called Gavrilo Princip. And the Austrians were furious, as you might expect, and they wanted to launch a punitive war against Serbia. Um, so after a bit of faffing around, they did. They'd got um, the Germans, their friends, to kind of underwrite it, to say they'd support them. So the Austrians attacked Serbia. Russia, which saw itself as the Serbians' protector, um, objected to this. They declared war on Austria. They mobilised against Austria. Um, the Germans then piled in against Russia, which also meant piling in against France because France was allied to the Russians. So now you had the two blocks against one another. And then there's a little bit of dithering for a couple of days while everybody wonders what Britain will do, because Britain is friends, very close friends with the French, but not necessarily formally bound to intervene alongside them. And there's a bit of a debate in Britain, but then everybody's minds are made up because the Germans, in order to deal with the French, go through neutral Belgium, which by treaty they are not allowed to do. And under the same treaty, um, Britain is feels duty-bound to intervene and look after the Belgians. So over we go across the Channel. Um, and as the title of the podcast has it, the rest is history. Brilliant. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Um, OK, this is uh, we're both British um, and I apologise to non-British listeners, but we are, are going to start with um, a very Anglo-centric tweet sent to us by Virgo Sam. And she says, uh, following up on, on the climax of your account there. Yeah. We, Britain, should have stayed out of World War One 
All it did was cause another world war. Uh, that is a thesis that's been pushed very heavily by Neil Ferguson. Yes. Um, distinguished yeah. historian of the First World War, who uh, published as a counterfactual what would have happened had, had Britain stayed out. So, so Dominic, what, I mean, what do you, if we had not gone to war, what yeah. would have happened? Well, the first thing to say is that could easily have happened, right? That we could easily have not gone to war. So right up till really the very beginning of August 1914, the people in the Liberal government at the time, many of them thought we shouldn't get involved. Um, and even they even some of them even said, you know, if the Germans go into Belgium, if they only go through the bottom, if they just pass through and they don't make a great fuss and a hullabaloo, we can kind of let them get away with it. Um, and Winston Churchill, uh, who was a great warmonger, um, said, um, you know, if they only just pass through Belgium a little bit, then maybe there's not really a cause for war. So we could easily not have done it. And the reason we did it was because people thought it was the least worst option. I mean, that's the case with all these things. People just thought, well, you know what? If we don't do it, if we don't intervene and the Germans win, they'll be the masters of Europe. We'll be isolated. They'll have all the channel ports. Um, we will be sort of squeezed out and we'll lose our empire, which was basically the consideration at the back of people's minds. We can't lose the empire. We can't let the Germans um, win. Now, as it happened, we did lose our empire. <laughs> we lost it, you know, 50 years later. And, you know, Germany right now is by far the leading economic power in Europe, in continental Europe. And what happened as a result of the First World War? We had to fight a Second World War, as Virgo Sam says. Um, you had the rise of communism in the Soviet Union and the Cold War with all the costs of that involved. You had the terrific costs of the Second World War, the rise of Nazism, the Holocaust, all the rest of it. So we don't know what would have happened if we'd stayed out. But could it seriously have been worse than what did happen? Now, of course, they couldn't have known that at the time, but we know that now. So with the benefit of hindsight, it seems to me obvious that we shouldn't if, have. It, if we had stayed out, then presumably Germany would have won. And one of the reasons why Germany would probably have won is that we were kind of, we had agreed with the French that, that our navy would patrol the Channel. Yes, that's so right. The, the, the French had no naval presence at all in the Channel. That's so we essentially right, yeah. would have sold the French down the line. And yeah. the, the the French ambassador famously said that he was waiting to see if the word honour was going to be deleted from the from the English dictionary while he was waiting for, for, for the British to make their mind up. I see a lot of the French thought we wouldn't do it because they thought they're perfidious, you know, they're treacherous shits, the British. They probably will sell us out. And a lot of French, are, you know, are, are sort of crying and, oh, woe is me, the Brits. They They never, you know, they always let you down, basically. And a lot of people abroad, the general assumption abroad was that Britain probably wouldn't get involved. So the Kaiser, for example, who has this huge complex about Britain because he's the grandson of Queen Victoria and he thinks his British relatives have always looked down on him. And he has this sort of this sort of almost tragicomic sense of inadequacy because, you know, cousin George and Uncle Eddie are always sort of laughing at his German way. Yeah. He thinks the Brits, <laughs> you know, surely the British will not intervene. Surely they won't do it. And as you say, I think um, there was a question of honour. So for the Liberal government at the time, they thought, you know, we've made this pledge to the French. We actually can't. We'll lose our good name if we don't, if we do the dirty on them. And if we if we leave them to face the might of basically the, the most modern professional army in Europe, which was the German army. Because the Germans had already wiped the floor with the French in 1870, 71. They probably have beaten them again 
1914 and then turned to, to deal with Russia. So I think it's a plausible assumption that Germany would have won. Right. So, so this, 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 this question of whether Britain should have entered the war and the, the, the framing that we could easily not have done. So ultimately, it, it comes down to the decision of basically of individual ministers. Yeah. And that really focuses in on the much broader question of are the causes of the First World War sweeping? You know, is it the nature of capitalism? Is it the nature of imperialism? Um, is it the nature of uh, industrial uh, civilization in Europe? Or is it because uh, the Archduke's car took a wrong turning in Sarajevo? <laughs> and people have argued both, haven't they? And there's but a think- sense, really, in which um, the, the fascination... I mean, I, I would guess that this is the question that has been most discussed, most debated, most disagreed about. I mean, Christopher Clarke, in his um, brilliant book, The Sleepwalkers, says that, that, that even he, who seems to have read everything on the subject, that actually it's impossible because so many... So much has been written about it that, that no one person could ever read it all. Yeah. That, that the fascination of this topic is that it's like a kind of Rorschach test for someone as a historian. If you emphasise the contingent, then there's plenty to prove that. If you emphasise Marxist or whatever theories, then there's plenty for you there as well. So essentially, the question gives you back your reflection as a historian. It does. Do you think that's fair? It's, it, I think it does. I think it's very fair, Tom. I think that's a very good point. And I think it, it's an unanswerable question, isn't it? It's like, why did the... The other big question is, why did the Roman Empire fall? And they're ultimately unanswerable questions. There's no formula that will explain it because it depends how you would, you know, how you would address the question. But also the, the weird thing, I think, about this question about the origins of the First World War is, in some ways, it's quite obvious why it started. So it started because... The Austrians felt they couldn't tolerate any longer um, Serbia kind of gnawing away at their southern borders. And they thought the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, which Serbia has, you know, probably colluded in or, or covered up or, you know, this, this sort of murky stuff going on with the, in, with the government in Belgrade. And they thought, we can't tolerate this anymore. We have to, we have to act. Now, that's not an unfathomable um, response. That's actually a perfectly you know, in the, in the grand sweep of history, it's a perfectly rational way to deal with a, a threat to your southern border. And the weird thing about the origins of the First World War is we don't have the same debate with all, every other war. It's just this one because of the death toll, because it was so te- cataclysmic, I think. We, we obsess over the way that it started as though it's some great mystery. We don't do that with the Napoleonic it- Wars or the Seven Years' War or the Thirty Years' War. It's perfectly obvious why they started but, wars but, are not anomalous they're not aberrant they're the norm but it, but, but isn't it because there'd been a century of peace yeah, but so, ha- well the, the war happens in the context of you know europe essentially um is at peace the great powers i mean i know you have the prussia doing its stuff and getting sand yeah. in people's face but 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 by and large there is no kind of seismic great power conflict of the order of the napoleonic wars until the first world war and so the question then becomes, what, what is it that drives all these people? And I think we kind of vis- we visualise in our mind people in, you know, hats with feathers and yes. ladies in sweeping dresses and, um, you know, formal tea on lawns. And we have a kind of sense of this Edwardian world that then just 
gets detonated. And it's not just because of the First World War. As you say, it's also because communism overthrows the Tsarist regime. Fascism comes to... to um, stamp its place in the very you know, in the heart of Europe's most civilised nation. So it's the sense of all these horrors that follow. Why, why does it explode? Is it, is it a tinderbox or is it an accident? Well, I think That's it's, the question. Not an, it's, it's obviously not an accident because it could have happened earlier. There were two or three occasions. So, for example, um, when Austria had annexed Bosnia uh, in 1908, you know, the Russians were in a terrible state about it and there was talk then could there be war. There were constant clashes between the Germans and the French. So the Germans and the French had bad blood from 1870-71 when Prussia had wiped the floor with France and the German Empire had been unified. And I think I'm right that, that, that at that point, opinion in Britain was very pro-Prussian. Yes, it was. Majority opinion in Britain welcomed the humbling of France. Yeah, we changed for an obvious reason. We changed because Germany becomes too successful. So, you know, we the French were number one enemies for a long time. Um, and in fact, there's a very good example of that, of a man who um, called William Lequex. And he writes these inv- invasion stories. So fantasies, yeah. basically, yeah. about um, Britain being invaded the, by foreign The Battle of Dorking. And the, exactly, this kind, kind of, of thing. His yeah. most famous one is called The Invasion of 1910, which was commissioned by the Daily Mail. And he, he, the Germans went through town after town, and they were specifically designed to be towns with very high Daily Mail circulation. And the Mail did a... Um, a, a map. The Daily Mail is f- famous, famous scaremongering, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> this is <laughs> outrageous claims on. Um, but it sold a million copies, which tells you how popular it was. But his yeah. first edition of it, which had been written, he based it on an earlier book in which it was the Russians and the French who invaded us. So the reason that the villains changed was because Germany had overtaken us. German manufacturers had overtaken us um, economically the Germans had tried to compete with us in building a a navy and lots of dreadnoughts the Kaiser had done all his sort of mad posturing and strutting around and moaning about his relatives so people had turned against Germany and Germany had become public enemy number one whereas previously it had been France I mean one reason we were allied to France you could argue is because the French had declined a bit in the sort of league table of nations They'd, they'd gone from being sort of number one or number two to number three or number four and they were the obvious people for us to ally with rather than the Germans, which might have been the case earlier on. The Neil Ferguson argument is that we didn't ally with Germany because actually the Germans were, were too weak. Do yeah. You, do you buy that? I think there's a bit of truth in that. So that's slightly allied to the, the Chris Clark argument, which is that we ally with the Russians in particular because we're frightened of them. So it was a kind of appeasement. Yes, yeah, we're frightened because of, because of the empire, because Russia exactly. can sweep down through Afghanistan into India and everything revolves around keeping India. So, yes. So I think you don't understand why Britain enters the First World War unless you understand how obsessed people were with India. Um, India is, you know, they're classically, stereotypically the jewel in the crown. If you lose that, you lose your status as top nation. You must keep India. And Russia is the big threat to India. So the best way to protect yourself against the Russians taking India is not to fight the Russians or make allies against them, but to have them on your side. And that wasn't such a necessarily a, a ludicrous calculation. But inevitably, because the Russians and the Germans are rivals, that means Germany ends up being on the other side of the equation. So it's actually more advantageous to us to ally with the Russians, who we hate, than the Germans, whom we don't, which is a kind of weird... And um, I'm just going to kind of serve you up a, a nice juicy half volley here. Um was there was there any chance, do you think, that Britain might have 
sided with Germany? And, and if we had, how would that have affected the calculus? Well, you see, this is, you know perfectly well, Tom, that this is my really, <laughs> this is my really, I'm here to serve. This is my really heretical view. You see, I, I, I oscillate between thinking that we shouldn't have fought the First World War or that we definitely should, but on the other side. <laughs> Attack the French. Yeah, I think we should have attacked the French. Yes. I think the Lord security Raglan. of the Channel Islands has been much um, under, underrated as a, as, a, as a priority for Britain. No, I think you we seriously have... you seriously think we should have sided with Germany against France? Well, think how it would work, right? So Germany is the rising power. Germany is the the dynamic modern new force on the world stage. If we had allied ourselves with Germany, which was not impossible, by the way, there were people Joseph Chamberlain in the late nineteenth yeah. century, and then Lord Haldane. Um, during the Edwardian period, who were very pro-German and um, who made, you know, sort of slightly feeble overtures to the Germans about the possibility of an alliance. So imagine we've been allied with Germany and Austria-Hungary. Fighting the Russians is no, you know, is no sort of, um, you know, nothing to worry about. I mean, the Russians are bad guys. They have a very, the most violent, repressive regime um, in Europe. The Russian elite hold down their population, um, you know, it's easy to see how you could make a justification for being against them. Little Belgium, who we always sort of talk about so sentimentally, are running the most rapacious, repulsive of all European colonies um, in Africa, in the Congo. Serbia is basically a kind of terrorist state. And that leaves France. And of course, the French are our ancestral enemies. If we're not anti-French, then we are nothing. So... I think you can create a great justification for us being on the side of the central powers. Germany is in many ways one of the most democratic societies in Europe in the early 20th century. This sort of image that they're basically proto-Nazis is rubbish. German trade unions were the strongest in Europe. The German Social Democratic Party. You know, the Kaiser is just a bit of a... He's, a, he's Mr. Toad. He's not Hitler. OK, OK, OK. But the, so, so the Kaiser, he comes to cows and he wears the wrong yachting shoes. And the British royal family laugh at him. And so he goes back and he, he, la- he launches a huge programme of naval building. I, I, yeah. Have I got that right? That is, yeah, that's, that's, that, 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 I think that's an A-level, that's an A-star, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, thanks. So, so, but the reason Britain doesn't is ally with Germany is because the, the Germans are busy building up their fleet. Yeah, and that is the way... You know, if 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 the if the Royal Navy is threatened by a rival European fleet, then it, it it's terrible. I mean, I remember I remember reading um, uh, Saki's novel when William came, when William came, yeah, when William came, which is about the, the the Germans launching a naval attack and winning and occupying Britain. And there's there's one of the one one of the things that's expressed in that is that if the if the if the Royal Navy gets knocked out, then the sea becomes a kind of prison. Yeah. And don't forget, Britain doesn't really have much of an army. So Britain's army is pitiful compared with everybody else's army. Yes. So, so that would be very easy. And, and also, if, um, if we don't have a navy and an occupying power does, then that, that navy can just starve us if there's any hint of exactly. the calcitrance. Yes. So the, the, the paranoia in Britain about the naval race is not entirely... I mean, it's not kind of mad, is it? It's, no, it's not completely mad. I mean, it's basically... Um, your classic, we were talking about in an earlier podcast about rising powers and declining powers. And Britain in the early 20th century, I think, feels itself to be a, a declining power. We'd fought the Boer War, in which we'd been close to humiliated. Um, there's a real sense that, you know, there's that sort of Rudyard Kipling recessional 
um, poem for people who know yeah. that. It's sort of this sense of melancholy about our empire, that our best days are probably behind us. Germany is the coming force. So when they start building battleships, when they build dreadnoughts of their own, people get in a, a real tizzy about it. And not unreasonably. They think, you know, we are a country that relies, we're a trading country, we rely on trade, we rely on imports. And if we don't get them, we're in a terrible mess. Okay, Dominic, uh, could you put down your pen? Your time is up. We are going to continue with the examination after a break, but for now, we'll be back in a minute. Hello, welcome back to uh, The Rest is History. Um, We are discussing what caused the First World War, very modestly. We've had about 15 minutes, I think. We'll have another 15 minutes to try and answer (laughs) that. No, we'll have done it, surely. Uh, Yeah. Okay, so um, lots of feedback uh, for this question on um, Twitter. And uh, we have a quote here from Dan Jackson, um, author of Northumbrians, a wonderful book. Um, He says, "I I think there's a crossover between last week's subject and this, because in August 1914, there was a culture war raging in the UK over Irish home rule. And I know that Dan did his doctorate on that subject. Tellingly, when Franz Ferdinand got shot, Asquith wrote to his wife saying, well, at least we won't have to talk about Ireland for a while. Um, and yeah. there was a f- famous um, famous comment by Churchill, wasn't there, in, uh, I think, 1922, where he he, he he talked about how the whole map of Europe had changed with the war. But as the deluge subsides and the waters fall short, we see the dreary steeples of Fermanagh and Tyrone emerging once again. So, that, I mean, that is, a, that is an interesting point, that, that actually, had the First World War not happened, then there may well have been a civil war, yes. certainly within Ireland and perhaps within, within Great Britain as well. So interesting, completely forgotten. Um, and actually, you meant, said earlier, you said before the break, you were talking about the sweeping dresses and the straw hats and people in the beaches eating ice cream and all the rest of it. And that's our image of Edwardian Britain, that it's this prelapsarian paradise. Yeah, uh, the, the Larkin poem. All going to be blown away. And, and it's completely wrong, because actually Britain felt like a country on the brink of civil war about home rule for Ireland. Um, there had been people smuggling guns into Ireland. There had been virtual mutiny in the army. Um and in fact, one reason that Britain's entry to the First World War is a bit of a shambles is that for the first few weeks after the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, basically the government are just sitting around arguing about Ireland and staring at maps of Tyrone instead of staring at maps of Serbia, which they should have been doing. Uh, am I not right that, is it Erskine Childers who wrote The Riddle, Riddle of, of the, the Sands? Sands, which was a kind of invasion scare novel? And didn't he end up kind of gun running for the IRA or something? Have I got that right? Right, Exactly. Yes, he did. He he smuggled guns into Ireland. Exactly right. So he writes. So he's actually the link between these two stories. He writes um, uh, the the classic book about German spies and about the Germans plotting to invade Britain. And then later on, he's executed for his role in smuggling guns in for the IRA. So yeah, the the yeah. Irish issue. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a funny thing, isn't it? If Gavrilo Princip waited for the Archduke outside a cake shop. Now, if he'd gone into the cake, if he'd, you know, if he'd had a sweet tooth, he'd been distracted, he'd gone in to get a bit of strudel or baklava, I suppose, if it was Sarajevo, the, Arch- the Archduke's car had gone past. Who knows? You know, shots might have rung out in Belfast two weeks later. And now we'd be doing this podcast about the great civil war of 1914 to 1918 in Ireland. OK, here's another one from Tom Richards. Um, oh, we're on to Blackadder because I think it's, it's inevitable. You isn't can't it? discuss it's the inevitable. First World War without without talking about Blackadder. In Blackadder Goes Forth, Edmund says, the real reason for the whole thing was that it was too much effort not to have a war. 
in true school essay style, my question is, to what extent do you think this is or isn't accurate? That's a good question. It is a good question, but I don't think... No, I don't think that's quite right. I think the way to think of it is that um, for all the different actors, the Austrians, the Russians, the Germans, the French, having a war looks like the least worst option. So not having a war is like a very bad option because you'll lose a lot of power and prestige and you're... You know, that they, they all feel like a war is coming and that it's in their interest to have it now. There, there is also a degree of fatalism, isn't there? Uh, yeah, I mean, all the, so we talked about all this fiction. I mean, the, the effect of this must be kind of to anaesthetise people to the prospect of it, or, or at least yeah. to familiarise them with it. Um, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. The people think there will be a war. So the German generals all think there is going to be a war with Russia and we should, a lot of them think we should have it now. We should have it sooner rather than later because Russia is rapidly industrialising, building railways and becoming much more sort of um, developed and modern. And that basically if we fight them in 1925, we could lose. We're going to fight lose. them now. If we get it over with, this is the time. That's what the Austrians think. They think if we don't fight Serbia now, we'll be in a weaker position when we do fight them. And all of those, are, you know... The, People have sort of striven very hard to find psychological reasons for that. But to me, a very obvious explanation is that's not a, that's not a weird thing to think. I mean, wars do happen. Wars happen yeah. all the time. And is it also, but also it's, to, to what extent is the, the image of um, mountaineers linked by ropes an accurate one? That well, the one, one, goes one person down. falls off and then another one falls off and then another one falls off. I mean, you've said that Britain could easily not have joined the war, but... That is a part of what happens, isn't it? That it's it's easier to kind of just follow the guy who's already fallen into the abyss because you're joined by a rope than to kind of try and cling on. Yeah, I think that's definitely true for Germany. So once Austria was fighting, Germany had to get involved. I think the real, to me, and maybe some people will disagree with this, but to me, the real break moment, the real moment where you think, mm, you didn't have to do that, is Russia. So Russia could have let Austria fight Serbia and not intervened wouldn't have been the end of the world for the Russians. They could have just let it go and let it be a little local war. But they felt, for reasons of prestige and status, and because they were worried about, they had the, their eyes on Constantinople, which they and they, they was their long-term goal, they thought, no, we can't let that go. We have to get involved. They actually thought they'd appease the Austrians too often. Okay, so that touches on two other uh, very popular theories for why the First World War happens. One is uh, Ottoman Empire, sick man of Europe, that it's in a, a seen to be in a, a, a advanced state of disintegration, um, and the jackals are, are circling. Um, they want to carve bits off, so that's that's a part of it. And the other one is, um, particularly with Russia, is that it mobilizes, and it's such a kind of vast, ponderous beast that the moment it's mobilized, it becomes impossible to stop. And so that's yeah. the kind of AGP Taylor line that it's. Um, you know, the, the, the railway <laughs> timetables of Europe meant yeah. meant that it couldn't be stopped. I mean, the Ottoman Empire is breaking up. There have been the Balkan Wars in 1912 to 13. So um, the emergence of places like Albania, people fighting over Macedonia. Um, so, yeah, when empires break up, people fight over their remains. And that was always going to happen with the Ottomans. Uh, and as for the railway timetables, I mean, H.A.P. <laughs> Taylor, who's sort of the Neil Ferguson of his day, um, pushed the argument a little bit too far for sort of TV effect, I think. But it's true that when Russia... Russia has to mobilise because it's so big. So it mobilises earlier. And when they did it, the, you know, the Tsar didn't want to sign the order. The Tsar yeah. 
resisted and resisted. And he said to his courtiers, when we do this, it will be very hard to stop it. Because yeah. it's that thing, you know, when one person tools up, you've got to do it too. Yeah, but also the the, um, the time it takes for these powers to mobilise, it's going on while diplomatic efforts are happening. And so the two are kind of pulling at each other. Yeah, but... yeah, you're right. And the, and the classic example of that, Tom, is the telegrams that the Kaiser and the Tsar sent to each other, the willy-nicky telegrams, as they're called, where they start off sort of saying, you know, we're great friends, we've always been pals, let's not, you know, let's make sure this doesn't happen, I'm going to do my best, I hope you're going to do your best. And even as they're doing it, their generals are putting the machinery into pro- into action. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's a kind of shadow that then hangs over the Cold War, I guess, that there's a kind of memory of that. And that must be one of the reasons why nuclear war doesn't happen. Yeah, that's, I think you're absolutely right. Everybody knows the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example, you know, the first of all was very much on people's minds that we can't. Yeah, I bet we we can't go over the brink as they did. We everything yeah. must be so carefully deliberated. Yeah, and I suppose also th- that was really only two powers, whereas part of the mess of the First World War is it's multiple powers. All yeah, makes it more complicated. Anyway, here's here 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 are two paired tweets. I'm going to read them both. One is from uh, James, who says, "Did the First World War cause Europe to stop being the centre of the world?" Um, and Chris Sparkles, um, Australian here. Should the Australians, Kiwis and Pacific Islanders have been in the First World War? Well, First World War. So I, they go together well. Um, yeah. It's a world war. Does, I mean, it, just as um, the kind of the, the, the ropes of alliance pull European powers into war, so also do the, 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 the ropes of, of dominion status and so on pull Canada and Australia and New Zealand and indeed India and other 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 colonies and indeed the French as well into um, uh, fighting in in Europe um, should they have been in the first world war I, I mean I, I mean guess they had to be they had to be they really to be I because mean, they were part of the empire and, and actually that had happened before so in the seven years war and the Napoleonic wars there was never you know there was never a sort of deal that you'll you know you'll stay out of it a thousand miles away let the powers in Europe get on with it. I mean, the colonies have been dragged into both those. Uh, I mean, anybody who's read the... Um, have you read those Patrick O'Brien um, novels? I, I tried and found them unreadable. Oh, Tom. You, no, no, no. They're it's brilliant. all just about rope and stuff. I just... <laughs> but you, that just oh. washes over you. No one knows what that means. All oh, stuff about sails. I, I think so boring. Um, but but in those books, in those books, they're, often they're taking place... It's about the Napoleonic Wars, for people who don't know, and it's about ships at war... But often they're taking place on the far side of the world, on the other side of South America or something. So this, you know, there had been global wars before. I mean, this wasn't the first global war and not the first war in which colonies had been involved. You know, the 18th century is full of sort of um, uh, proxy wars and colonies, you know, people, colonists fighting each other in North America and stuff. So it was inevitable. Could never have been otherwise. There, there is there is the argument, isn't there, uh, that another cause of the First World War is that the colonial, the European colonial powers are honing their ability to kill in the colonies. Yeah. So in a way, one of one, I, I think one of the great novels about the First World War is actually written in the, the late 19th century, which is H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds. It's a kind of portrayal mm-hmm. of a, an immensely superior power incinerating uh, London. And at the beginning of, of of the novel, Wells overtly compares what the Martians do 
to Britain to what the British have done to the Tasmanians. Um, yes, he does. Kind of You're right. Aboriginal people in Tasmania who effectively get wiped out. Um, and so there's, a, I, I think, I mean, I think clearly the First World War does devastate uh, Europe's um, financial, economic, uh, cultural, moral power. But there is an argument that that it's a kind of, you know, it's it's the empire striking back. It's the colony striking back. It's 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 a kind of tragic payback for what yeah. the colonial powers have been doing in, in say, in Africa. I've heard that argument, Tom. I sometimes wonder whether that argument is sort of historians of empire just desperately trying to put themselves centre stage. So that would that would illustrate the argument that that, that it's a Rorschach test that that you find right, in, it would you find reflected in it, your own interests. It's not like European powers needed to hone their killing techniques in Africa and Asia. I mean, they'd in the Napoleonic Wars and the Crimean War and the Franco-Prussian War, they yeah. had proved themselves eminently capable of killing each other on European fields. Yeah. Okay. Well, actually, let, let, let's go on to another question because, uh, in a sense, this is again about the the mirror that um, literature has held up to the war. And we're back to Blackadder. Has Blackadder distorted our views of World War One? Has it been helpful in our understanding? Not just Blackadder. Uh, the First World War poets, yeah. um, Oh, What a Lovely War, all of that, um, lines led by donkeys, the whole tradition. There's a danger in talking about this that you turn into Michael Gove. Michael Gove basically denounced Blackadder and said that um, uh, lefty historians like me who thought that we shouldn't have fought the First World War were really sort of peddling Did Richard you just Curtis's. say lefty historians like yeah, me? Yeah, like me. Yeah, well, that's what Michael <laughs> Gove would clearly, would clearly think. <laughs> Um, um <laughs> so I think he I think um Tom you're enjoying I can see on my screen Tom is laughing far too much. Um yes, famous, I think, famous left wing historian Dominic Sandbrook. Yeah. Could I just say that I, I played a key role in that? In, in what? getting Michael Gove to interested in the First World War because I was on um Start the Week with Margaret Macmillan oh. and with Michael Gove. This really is the podcast that brings you brushes with greatness. And after after the um after we'd done it. Margaret was talking more about um, uh, the First World War and we talked about the revisionist theory. Uh, I mentioned Gary Sheffield's biography of, of General Haig and uh, Michael Gove clearly, this was just before Christmas, clearly went back home and, and read it. Uh, and then after New Year, started contributing to the debate on, on the character and nature of the First World War. So I like to think that, that I too have played my humble part in yeah. the historiography <laughs> wow, of the First World War. Anyway, yes, oh, sorry, I interrupted you. But it's also the poets, isn't it? It's also Wilfred Owen, yes. Secret Sassoon. Everybody does them at GCSE or whatever, at least they did. And that sort of image of the war is all mud and blood and misery. I mean, it's a funny thing about Oh, What a Lovely War. I did Oh, What a Lovely War at school. We did a production of it. And it's this great anti-war play down at the end of the 1960s by Joan Littlewood and her theatre workshop. And a classic left, left-wing agitprop, basically. And there's a great story about a group of First World War veterans going to an early performance of Oh, What a Lovely War. And the story is, you know, they sat through it. There were a lot of songs and the songs are meant to be ironic because they're all going to die. But the veterans didn't see it that way at all. They yeah. sang along very happily with the songs. And then afterwards, they all went to the bar and they weren't standing around traumatised saying, oh, I never talked about this or the rest of it. They were telling each other anecdotes about people who've had their hand blown off or oh, old Johnny who I stood next to me had his head shot off by a German and then we played football with him a week later or, you know, this kind of thing. So... The idea that people hated it, and a lot of people actually wrote home and said they were enjoying themselves in the war because their life back at home in the factory was so grim. But the Wilfred Owen, Oh, What a Lovely War, Blackadder take on it as a, a disastrous, muddy, bloody mistake 
I mean, that's basically your take as well, isn't it? I mean, you're saying that that it was such a calamity that we should never have got involved in it. But there is uh, definitely, you know, there is definitely the, 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 the kind of revisionist school is that it, it was a necessary war. Well, I don't think it was a necessary war. I mean, I think that's balderdash, frankly. I know if Gary Sheffield okay, is listening yeah. to this, he'll have his head in his hands. Um, but I, I, I don't buy that at all. I don't think it was a necessary war. Um, but equally, Top left-wing historian speaks out. <laughs> <laughs> the man they cannot I, gag. I think the Guardian are on the phone right now, actually. Um, <laughs> I think. Come on, let's have some more of your left-wing nonsense, Dominic. Um, but I don't think it, it wasn't. It clearly just wasn't all mud, blood, and misery. I mean, it just okay. wasn't. So there's okay. lots of aspects of the war, actually. We haven't talked about the war in Italy, the war in the Middle East, the war in the air. You know, there's much more to it than sort of bouldering in the trenches, which has been reduced to. OK, well, I just want to stick on this, because 50-something Gardner, he's, he's hammering home at this point as well. If the UK had stayed out, would the First World War have been a rerun of 1870-71, so the yes. frankly Prussian yes. War? Given what actually happened, difficult to see how quick German victory would have been a worse outcome for UK. So that's basically what you're saying, isn't it? I mean, what's the worst that happens? We have a big economic competition with the Germans in the 1920s and 30s. I mean, maybe we even fight a war with them. That's the worst case scenario. But I mean, since we did that anyway. Do we know what the what the German plans for for victory were? They wanted a kind yes. of economic community, didn't they? A kind of <laughs> well, this is Neil Ferguson's claim. He basically says they want yeah. to set up the EU, um, which I think most <laughs> people regard as a bit of a stretch. I think the truth is they went into it without great plans. Then once the war started, they did develop a statement of war aims, which was which were very punitive. So they basically wanted to turn the low countries into a kind of German fiefdom. They wanted everybody to be in a German-dominated customs union. What were their plans for France? Well, France would be reduced to a kind of German satellite. And for Britain? So if we'd entered and, and, and been defeated, what were, what were the, do we know what Germany's plans for Britain were? No, I don't think they had clear plans for Britain. Clearly would have given up a lot of the empire. They would have demanded um, the confiscation of colonies. Whether we would have had to take part in some German economic unions is hard to say. But of course, the truth with all these things is that what resulted at the end of the war was never what anybody had planned. So, I mean, we didn't get exactly the results in the after the First World War that we thought we had got we would get beforehand because we didn't really have clear plans. People's war plans were were always changing, and and by nineteen eighteen nineteen. The emergence of revolution in Russia and the fears of the spread of Bolshevism mean everything has been thrown into confusion. So, so as, as a left-wing historian, obviously, we, we, we should look at the Marxist take yeah. on the First World War. And Lenin's view on it was that it was the kind of end times for capitalism and imperialism. Yes, that, that, that wasn't a prediction that really, really worked out. Um, no, and I don't think it's a result of the search for profit and search for markets and, and all that kind of stuff that's a necessary result of imperialism. I, d- I don't think you need to go down the sort of Marxist um, line to explain it to you. I mean, I think it starts for the reason most wars start, which is fear. People always think, I, I mean, you maybe you all have a different take on this, going back to the sort of Persian wars and all that sort of stuff. I don't think wars start generally because of greed or because of hatred or any of those things. I think they generally start because people are afraid and they think that war is the least worst option because if you mm. don't choose war, you will be poorer or weaker or you know, your enemies will attack you. I mean, that's the classic reason that you think they're going to fight you, so you do it first. But I think those are the real reasons. There is also the argument, isn't there, that, um, that, that people quite wanted it, that people 
were quite excited about it, uh, that people felt that um, a century of peace had been too long. Uh, well, some people, that's true. Time for a rematch. I mean, if you ever read this sort of um, Italian futurist poets, for example, I mean, they were yes. itching for... I mean, I know yes, you read them well, all the time, Tom. You yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but the, and in Germany there were there were kind of um, uh, enthusiasts for Nietzsche and yeah, Rupert Brooke in that, Britain, you know, said you know we'll be what is it the line about um, swimmers leaping into water and washing away yeah. the kind of dirt of civ- ordinary civilized life. I mean, a lot of people kind of bought that that idea. There was this sort of cult of there was a cult of violence, I think. Um, Although plainly, it is also the case that people did did entirely understand what a calamity it was going to be. I mean, I guess the famous Edward Grey thing about the lights going out over Europe and we won't yeah. see them lit again in our lifetime. Um, I mean, that's nothing if not a statement that this is going to be a, a calamity beyond our imaginings. So it's kind of a strange mix of, of jingoism and, and kind of bleak horror. And actually everybody who knew anything about it, so all the people who were the policymakers, they all did know how terrible it was going to be. So the German generals... Helmut von Moltke, for example, who was the, the German sort of chief of staff, he had told the Kaiser a couple of years before, when there is a war, it will be absolutely awful. And even if we win, we will come out of it exhausted and poorer and it will be incredibly draining and we will be a different country afterwards. So they, they didn't go into it thinking it was going to be jolly, kind of flag-waving, you know, it was, it was going to be a sort of um, a pageant. They didn't think mostly that it was going to be over by Christmas either, did they? That's, no. That's a, a myth. Yeah, that is a myth. I mean, some of the soldiers did, some of the ordinary soldiers, um, but none of the generals really think, oh, this is going to be easy, it's going to be a walk in the park. I mean, of course they don't. You know, they're not idiots. They look at the... There's this sort of image that we have, the Blackadder image, that the people in charge are really foolish and it's actually the ordinary people who are really smart and clued up, and I think that's completely wrong. A lot of the as it were, the ordinary people who went out to fight had no idea where they were going and, and what they were doing. There's all these stories about peasants in France or in Russia coming in from the fields and they're told you're at war, you have to go and fight. They don't know who they're fighting for, who they're fighting against. The whole thing is a mystery to them. And the people in charge, the scary thing in some ways is that they did know what they were doing. They were intelligent, they were well-informed, but they did it anyway. They did it anyway, and that could kind of be an epitaph for, for so much that we've been, uh, we've been discussing on this podcast. Well, or indeed That's of all history. For today. That is it for today. If you know anyone studying 20th century history, do please send them a link to this podcast and they can listen to uh, left-wing historian Dominic Sandbrook giving his revisionist take um, and tell them it'll save them hours of revision, though there's no guarantee it'll get them a good grade, of course. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with The Rest is History. Goodbye for now. Auf Wiedersehen. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.